I am very glad to be here at the Master's College because if, if I could choose a place in California to be, to be with college students, it would be right here because I know what this school stands for. I know what this school teaches. Uh, I know the folks who lead and the folks, many of whom teach in this institution. And over a period of time, I've gotten to know so many students here. This is a very special place. And I am so thankful that you are right here at the Master's College. I believe what's going on here uh, is uniquely well-situated to serve you and uh, through you to serve the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ because of the conviction and because of the clarity and uh, the, the, the healthy, happy culture that is a part of the Master's College. Every time I meet a graduate of Master's College, every time I meet someone who's with the college, uh, they represent a happy, healthy, convictional Christianity. And that makes me happy to be here with you. We're going to turn to a familiar passage of Scripture, and that's the third chapter of John. The Brits have an expression of carrying coal to Newcastle, which is the coal center of Britain. In other words, why would you take coal to the place from which coal comes? same kind of question someone might ask you coming to the master's college this is a college in which students and faculty and staff leadership alike know the scripture and if they know the scripture they certainly know john chapter three last night preaching at the shepherds conference i uh, i preached an exposition on malachi two fairly confident that no one out of the thousands of people gathered there for the shepherds conference had ever in their lives heard an exposition of Malachi chapter 2. The opposite is the case this morning. I assume that almost everyone in the room has heard an exposition of John chapter 3. But one of our confidences in Scripture, a part of the perfection of Scripture, is that it is alive. It, it is the Word of God in a living sense, sharper than any two-edged sword. We return to a text as familiar as it is to us because it is new every time we read it. The Holy Spirit who sovereignly is applying this word to our hearts through the act of preaching, conforming us to the image of Christ, does it anew every time the text is preached. I also want us to look at this text because it reminds us of a couple of hermeneutical principles that, that we just need to keep in mind every once in a while. Perhaps those who know the Bible best need to keep these principles ever foremost in mind. One of them is this. Our understanding of Scripture, our doctrine of Scripture, is exactly what Scripture claims of itself, that it is the verbally inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. And that means that the perfection of Scripture, its inerrancy, extends to every single word of Scripture. That claim of inerrancy does not extend to the chapter and verse divisions, because they are not original to the text. John did not write a gospel separated into chapters and verses. Now, by the way, we should be very happy that the Bible is divided into chapters and verses. This is a very happy thing. It's happy for every reason. Here's, here's one. It's happy because it was done as, as, as an answer to the Reformation, having created a hunger for the preaching of the Word of God and the, the commitment that the Scripture was to be translated into the vernacular so that people could read the, the Scripture in their own language and for the first time 
in, in the history of the Christian church, you actually had masses of people, thanks to the advent of printing, who had the Bible in their hands as the preacher was reading and the preacher was teaching. That had never happened before in the history of Christianity. And here's the problem. If you wanted to begin to preach in a particular place in the Gospel of John, it was hard to tell people where to go, how to find the text. It's hard to say, try to find the 23rd, therefore... And we'll start right there. It's a lot easier to say we're going to start at John chapter 3, verse 1. It, it's happy because it helps us in preaching. I, you can do exactly what I ask you to do. You can find the, the, the text in the Gospel of John. So what's the problem? Well, here's the problem. Sometimes those chapter and verse divisions mislead us into understanding how the text is to be read. I believe this is an example. I do not believe that John chapter 3 should begin where John chapter 3 begins. But rather that the paragraph prior to John chapter 3 should be read as the introduction to what follows in John chapter 3. There's a second hermeneutical principle, and this is, this is one that's aging. This is, this is one that is not so common anymore. There may be someone in this room who has a red-letter New Testament. Red Letter New Testament was a, a printing device. It, it, was, it was basically uh, invented by evangelicals in the early 20th century as a way of isolating the words of Jesus, printing those words in red, and printing all the rest of the text in black. What could be wrong with that? Two things. First of all, some of you are probably aware of a movement that has emerged in kind of left-wing evangelicalism. They call themselves Red Letter Christians, and what they're saying is, we're just going to live by the words of Jesus. And, and you'll hear them say things like, Jesus didn't say anything specifically about same-sex marriage, so we don't have to say anything specifically about same-sex marriage. We're red-letter Christians, we just live in the red letters, because after all, that's what Jesus said. Here's the problem. Jesus himself said of the scripture that it is all inspired. And, and, and so what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write is just as inspired as what the Holy Spirit inspired John to write, even about the direct discourse, the actual words of Jesus. Here's the other problem. In the Greek language, there are no quotation marks. And that becomes very clear here in John chapter 3. So let's look to the text, beginning John chapter 3, in John chapter 2, at verse 23, and continuing through verse 17. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter in a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of God, the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why begin with the paragraph preceding chapter 3? It tells us that Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. It tells us, secondly, that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. John's characteristic word for miracle is signs, and, and, and that's actually a better word for miracle than is the word miracle. And it's because of this. Jesus is clear that his miracles are indeed signs. The, the miracles were performed not to be spectacles in and of themselves, but rather to disclose the fact that only the Son of God could do this. Only the one whom God has sent could do this. Interestingly, what we have here is something that, that ought to warn us, even about a pattern of response to Christ that we see, not just in the pages of the Gospel of John, but we, we, we see it in church life today. There are those who believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. One of the interesting patterns in the Gospels is so long as Jesus keeps doing the signs, the people keep believing in him. At least many do. That's the word many is used here. In other words, there are those who have to have a sign in order to believe, and they've got to have a sign pretty regularly. You see that pattern in some, in some Christian churches where you see, the, you see the urgency to come up with a sign just about every time people gather together. There's not a sign, a sign of this, a sign of that. People aren't going to stay. They're not going to come. They're not going to believe. We're told here that Jesus understood their hearts. He, he, he knew them. It's an amazing statement. It goes right back to what we would read, for instance, in the book of Exodus, where when it speaks of the children of Israel in captivity, and they, they cry out to God, and then chapter 2 simply ends with the word, and the Lord knew. He knew. He's omniscient. He, he knows. He knows more than they knew about their own oppression. He knew everything. He knew past, present, future. He knew how it happened, and he knew what he was going to do. We're told here that Jesus knows. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. That's what's so key to introducing John chapter 3. He knew all people. And not only that, he needed no one to bear witness about man. He, doesn't, he didn't need to consult experts on anthropology to understand humanity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created by him, including every single man. He knew what was there. He didn't need to have any advice on how to understand humanity. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Then that first word of what's marked is chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus is going to be identified three different ways in John chapter 3. He's going to be identified 
as, uh, as you see here, a man of the Pharisees. He's going to be identified as a ruler of the Jews and a teacher of Israel. Three different titles, three different descriptors given to Nicodemus. This is a man who is in the inner circle of the inner circle. He's in the elite of the elite. As a matter of fact, there would have been very few, if any others in Israel, who would have been able to check off all three of those particular descriptors. He is, first of all, a Pharisee. Now, here again, we as evangelicals, we have a certain pattern of, of hermeneutical intuition. And, and that, that the way, the way, in other words, we interpret sometimes by intuition. And so from the time we were little kids, if, uh, if you were in Sunday school and you're taught the scripture, when you hear the disciples, that's our team. And, and when you hear the Pharisees, that's the opposing team. And so really early, you have the instinct, when you hear the disciples, yay. When you hear the Pharisees, boo. But the interesting thing is to understand that as this is stated in terms of first century Judaism, that would not have been exactly the response. No, it, it, in, indeed, when we think about what it means to be called a Pharisee, especially in the context here of Nicodemus coming to see Jesus, we, we need to remind ourselves that they were the sect within Judaism a sect of men who sought to be the most God-honoring they could imagine. They were not seeking to dishonor God. They were seeking to honor him. They were not seeking to disobey God. They were seeking to obey him. They were not unconcerned about being righteous. They were, they were consumed with passion to be righteous. And therein lies the problem. They had convinced themselves that they were righteous. By seeking to prove that they wanted to be obedient to God, they were actually hyper-obedient to God in such a way that they over-tithe, they overwork, they overprayed. They believed that an ostentatious display of their piety as they would pray in public and, and draw attention to themselves, that that would, actually, that that would actually build their account, as it were, in terms of righteousness. It was actually, this is what happens to sinful humanity. We can turn our, what we think is an effort to do right into an unrighteousness rather than righteousness. So when we hear the word Pharisee, we instantly recoil because this tells us trouble's coming, and trouble is coming. That's not wrong. It's just wrong to think that the Pharisees were driven by an ambition to displease God. No, they were, they were actually driven by an ambition to please God, but they were also driven by the delusion that they were or that they were capable of doing so in their own righteousness. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, as a ruler of the Jews. He's on the inside of the political elite in terms of the Jews. Later, Jesus himself will refer to him as the teacher of Israel. Nicodemus, we are told here, and you know this story already. This man, we are told, verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. Again, we know this, uh, we know this story, and at this point, what we think we know is that Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, teacher of Israel, did not want to come in public to see Jesus, didn't want to come in the light of day to see Jesus, didn't, didn't want to attract any publicity, and, and what's here is a form of pharisaical subterfuge. That's not exactly wrong, but it's probably not right. Again, put in the context of first century Judaism, what should jump out of us, out at us when we hear that Nicodemus came by night is not subterfuge, but urgency. In first century Judaism, the, the house was a domestic place of tranquility, and uh, might not have been too tranquil inside, but at least it was to be closed off from the world outside. 
And, uh, and especially given the fact that, that day and night represented such a contrast, uh, the, the night was a time in which the home was considered to be sacrosanct. You did not come and, in, and intrude upon a family at night. It was considered rude. It was out of place. Jesus actually uses this in one of his parables about a neighbor who in, in the night has such an urgent need. He simply will not allow his neighbor to sleep until he gets what he needs by banging on the door. And you look at that and you say, well, that, that, that's urgency. That's what we should see here. What we should actually understand is that this man who was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, he might be, in some sense, motivated by subterfuge and secrecy, but his main concern is urgency. Here you have a man who is filled with an urgency to know who Jesus is. You read John 1, you read John 2, and you can understand that very quickly here in the Gospel of John, a conflict is building between Jesus and the Pharisees, between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. Jesus came into his own, as we are told, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, as we know from John chapter 1. So he came into his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him. There were some out of the many who refused and rejected him. There were some out of the many in his own who received him not, who did receive him. Some believe we already know that from those final verses of John chapter 2. And now in John chapter 3... Nicodemus is coming to see Jesus. Driven by such an urgency, he simply has to know what's going on here. Who is this man? Who is this teacher sent from God? Look at the language that he uses. Nicodemus comes to him and calls him rabbi, as you see in verse 3. Begin in verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What an explosion that happens right there in the proximity of two verses. Well, here you have Nicodemus come and refer to Jesus as rabbi, a term of respect, and then he makes an astounding statement. We, we read over this without recognizing what Nicodemus is saying. Nicodemus says, A, we know you are a teacher come from God. That's an astounding statement. That, that's, in effect, a confession of faith. Now, it's not a confession of the Christian faith, but it's a confession of faith. He, he has here acknowledged, in the very beginning of his conversation with Jesus, I want you to know from the very beginning that I am fully aware you have been sent from God. How does Nicodemus know this? Because no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, do you understand why we, why we began in those final verses of chapter 2? It's because exactly what we read about in those final verses of chapter 2 is what Nicodemus is doing in the opening verses of chapter 3. That's why those final verses are the introduction. What did it tell us? Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He himself knows right now what is in a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus follows the very pattern you see there in the end of chapter 2. He says, I know, I know you're a teacher sent from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Here's what's really interesting. Six chapters later in John chapter 9, the Pharisees will get into an argument about this very point. You recall that that's the chapter in which there was a man blind from birth and Jesus passes him and heals him. And, and then the Pharisees are so upset about the healing of this man 
who was blind from birth, they keep interrogating him. Then they interrogate his parents. Then they interrogate him again, saying, who's the one who did this to you, and how did he do it? And then the, the Pharisees get into a debate once they know very clearly that Jesus is the one who gave him sight. Is he from God or not? The Pharisees get into a debate amongst themselves. Well, no one who's not sent from God could do this, but no one sent from God would do it this way, without a license. Nicodemus understands, he knows. He comes and says, I know not only that, he says, we know. He's not just representing himself as he comes alone. There are others who know you are a teacher sent from God. For no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. How are you going to respond to that? Notice how much he has said that is true. As a matter of fact, notice that everything that he said is true. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, calls him teacher, says, we know that you are come from God because no one can do the signs you do unless God has sent him. There's nothing wrong with that. Not a thing. As a matter of fact, there's everything right with that. It's just not enough. Jesus looks to him and says, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again. That is abrupt. Nicodemus, You're not right. I can still remember a famous incident with a professor, I believe he was at MIT, physicist, who was giving an oral examination to a physics doctoral student. And the professor was known for not saying much. He listened to the graduate student spell his entire thesis out. He was nervously fidgeting with his glasses as the student was speaking. The, the old physicist was just sitting there watching what was happening, and then the student turns and says, was that right? With a quizzical look on his face, the professor famously looked at him and said, no, that's not right. It's not even wrong. That's going to hit some of you after lunch. <laughs> Sometimes an answer can be, not right, it's not even wrong. It's just way out there. In the case of Nicodemus, he's, he spoke to Jesus saying, we know you are a teacher come from God. No man can do the signs you do unless God has sent him. And Jesus says, that's not right, it's not even wrong. You must be born again. Oh, what an astounding statement. You must be born again. Look at Nicodemus's confusion. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter into a second time into his mother's womb and be born? What's Nicodemus doing there? Well, he's, do he's doing exactly what it looks like. He's trying to figure out what Jesus has told him because it sounds like what Jesus said is the impossible. When Nicodemus protests here, it's, it's, it's not about obstetrics. That's not what's going on here. That's, that, that, that's not what Nicodemus is really wondering. That, that, that's a given. A man can't enter into his mother's womb and be born a second time. That would be, well, what's the right word for it? Impossible. And, and why would Nicodemus come to that conclusion when Jesus says you must be born again? It is because, humanly speaking, it is impossible. The doctrine of conversion is one of the most subverted and hated doctrines in biblical Christianity. 
The reason I wanted to preach on this today is because I, I fear there are many evangelicals who do not understand that the only Christianity we know is a Christianity that begins with, you must be born again. And we also need to understand that that is so in contrast to the wisdom of the world around us, they honestly cannot possibly believe that it is possible to be born again, that it is necessary to be born again, or that it could be healthy to be born again. Theological liberalism in the 19th century very clearly rejected the need for conversion. Horace Bushnell, famous liberal theologian in the late 19th century, he argued that instead Christian nurture should be the expectation. We should, we should raise Christians from, from birth in, in, in the Christian home in order that, as he famously put it, there should never be a point at which the child knows himself to be anything other than a Christian. And that's pretty much the way mainline liberal Protestantism has worked. You know, we don't want, we don't want anything as psychologically unhealthy as a, as a conversion. We don't, want to tell, we, we don't want to tell kids they're sinners. That would, that would bruise their little egos and, and, uh, and harm their little development, and it would make them have negative thoughts about themselves. We want them to have only positive thoughts about themselves. And, and conversion hinges on the understanding that we are not fundamentally good, we are not fundamentally right, we are not fundamentally worthy, but rather we have to begin anew. Absolutely. William James, perhaps the most influential philosopher in American history, invented basically the, uh, the, the worldview we now know as pragmatism. He, he denied the reality of absolute truth. He argued that in his famous formula, truth is what happens to an idea. In other words, an idea is, is simply an idea, and if it works, it's true. If it doesn't work, it's not true. It's a, it's a subversion of the entire biblical worldview. But he also wrote the most influential book in terms of religious psychiatry or psychology entitled The Varieties of the Religious Experience. And in the early decades of the 20th century, William James said that humanity is divided between the once born and the twice born. And he suggested that, that being twice born might be necessary for some people, but it would be necessary because of an underlying psychological condition of need. But in general, William James said, it should be avoided to have to be twice born. Being once born should be enough. In 1976, Jimmy Carter ran for president of the United States. He had been the governor of Georgia, and he spoke of himself as a born-again Christian. It turned out that most people in the secular media had no idea what a born-again Christian was. Unlike you, they are not familiar with John chapter 3. And uh, needless to say, that was now a long time ago. Newsweek magazine came out with a cover story, The Year of the Evangelical, because they had discovered born-again Christians. And they did all this stuff about being born again. Martin Marty was a professor of church history at the University of Chicago. He happened to be speaking on the campus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary when Newsweek was writing the article. Susan Cheever, the religion editor at Newsweek, called him, got him in the guest house on our campus, and asked him to define a born-again Christian. Martin Marty knew exactly what was happening. He was hearing from Newsweek magazine, and they had no idea what a born-again Christian was. And, and Martin Marty famously responded to him saying, you know, you've got bureaus all over the world. You think you know what's going on in New Delhi? You know, in, in Tokyo and Baghdad? He said, how about sending some of your reporters and creating a, a bureau in Birmingham? Because you would discover that born-again Christians are not an exotic tribe. 
that just might be found with enough, you know, a sophisticated anthropological team sent by National Geographic. It just might happen that you could find some of them in New York City. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, it's impossible. And Nicodemus is right. The conversation goes on. Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus says, it is impossible. Humanly speaking, being born again is impossible. You recognize why all these secular psychotherapeutic theories end in failure? It, it, it's because secular psychology, looking at the human problem, says something in there needs to be fixed. There's a, there's a need in there that needs to be satisfied. There's a complex there that needs to be decoded. There's a, th there's a syndrome there that needs to be understood. There's a privation or, a, or something that explains why this person behaves in this way, and, and there's something we need to fix it. We will fix it by intervening with a therapy, with some kind of therapeutic modality, one sort or another. And the problem is, what human beings need is not therapy. It's being born again. Nicodemus is completely puzzled. He, he says to Jesus, well, if I have to be born again, that's just impossible. And Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, he doubles down. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, water speaking of that first birth, meaning of the, of the actual birth of the baby, that's not referring to baptism in this case. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's talking to a Pharisee, he's talking to a ruler of Israel, and he is telling him to his face, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Which is saying, you know, Nicodemus... You came to me and you said, you know I am come from God because no one can do the signs that I do unless God has sent him. But actually, unless you're born again, you don't know anything. You can't see anything. It's catastrophic language from Jesus to Nicodemus. And again, Jesus just intensifies it. Getting to a principle he will repeat in John chapter 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. In verse 8, Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with anyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the sovereignty of God and salvation. This is actually the doctrine of election, right here in John chapter 3. The wind blows where it wishes. This is the Holy Spirit in regeneration. This is the Holy Spirit in bringing about the new birth. The, it is impossible. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. Nicodemus is right. If, if someone comes up to you and says, Right now, be born again. You couldn't do it. If, if, if someone at the point of your life says, look, the only escape is for you to be born again, birth yourself again, it's impossible. But Jesus, of course, has just told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then he says, don't marvel. Don't marvel at this. You, you can't predict where the wind goes, but you see the effect of it. You, you can't explain the wind, but you can see what it does. Such it is with the kingdom of God. And isn't this the way? How in the world did we end up in this room as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? How is it that we were born again? It's because the wind blew. It's because the Holy Spirit moved. It, it, in a way that isn't predictable, that we can't manipulate, in a way that we can't always anticipate or we can't predict, 
We, we can't tell how the Holy Spirit's going to move, but the Holy Spirit moves. And regeneration takes place. And, and a sinner believes and repents of her sin, of his sin. And that, that sinner becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that, that sinner is born again. Being born again is not something that happens to some Christians. It is the only way to become a Christian. It's, it, it, it's not a way in which we might please God. It is the only way we can be found pleasing to God. This is why we preach the gospel indiscriminately. It, it's just like what Jesus was talking about in the parable of the sower and the soils. You, it would be tempting to think we could just take the seed and uh, let's go and find the people who are the good soil. Let's just do that. Let's use marketing analysis. Let's, uh, let's use anthropological data. Let's, uh, let, let, let's go to the places where there's going to be more good soil. Let's stay out of the places which is going to be like the hardened ground. Let's, uh, let's do our best to do soil analysis so we can see the rocky soil and the weed-infested soil. We're going to stay away from those. We are going to be the evangelists of the good soil. Try it. By the way, if the preaching of the gospel was only to the people thought to be good soil, many, many of us in this room would never have heard the gospel. No, we're to preach the gospel indiscriminately. We're to take it to the places everybody says it's impossible that anyone there will ever believe. Because actually, it's impossible that anyone anywhere would ever believe, except for the sovereign Holy Spirit of God. You see the wind where it is blown. You can't predict where it blows. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Another honest question. Nicodemus is, this is not an antagonistic question. He's just, this is very different from how can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born again. That can't happen. That's impossible. This is, this is different. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus simply in effect, rhetorically surrenders. How can these things be? Jesus, again, intensifies. He says, so you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? This is, this is people of God 101. You're the teacher of Israel. So Nicodemus, what exactly are you teaching? It, it, it all begins with you must be born again. And if you haven't been born again, and you don't even understand what it means to be born again, if, if the whole doctrine of conversion and, 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 and regeneration of all of this is, is, is foreign to you, what in the world are you teaching Israel, you teacher of Israel? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? This is really raising the intensity. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, look, this is entirely basic and you're missing it. And it's not because you're missing parts, it's because you're missing the whole. You're the teacher of Israel and you don't even know what it means that one must be born again. If we had time, we could look at the Old Testament background. We could ask the question, should Nicodemus have known this? And the answer to that is yes. Because even in the Old Testament, there is already pointers to the fact, and in fact, explicit statements of the need to be born again. Jeremiah will talk about the absolute necessity of a new heart. 
The new covenant is promised as being predicated upon a, a new heart. This is a new life. This is a heart of flesh that replaces a heart of stone. That's being born again. That's what happened to every single one of us who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and is following Christ. What happened to us? Our heart of stone was turned to a heart of flesh. We did not turn our heart of stone to a heart of flesh. It was transformed, regenerated by the sovereign mercy and grace of God. Jesus himself points back to the Old Testament when he says in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. He asked him in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how in the world are you going to believe if I tell you heavenly things? Then he identifies himself as the Son of Man. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. On what authority is Jesus speaking? When he says you must be born again, it is the authority of God himself. As he is the Son of God, he is the Son of Man. He is the one who has descended from the Father. You must be born again. He must be lifted up, even as that bronze serpent in the wilderness was lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. Then follows... Certainly in the English language, but also in many other languages, the most familiar and accessible summary of the gospel. We know it as John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. Here's that red-letter New Testament problem. Did Jesus say this? Most Johannine scholars with no quotation marks, we'd, we'd look at the text in the original language and it would appear that Jesus probably would put a quotation mark at the end of verse 15. Then what we do with verse 16? The same thing we do with any other verse of Scripture. This is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. At some point, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus stops speaking and John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, explains what Jesus was saying. That's why we have the Gospel of John. It's not just a transcript of what Jesus said. It is a theological explanation inspired by the Holy Spirit so that we would understand it. Jesus had just said to Nicodemus that the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then God says, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The son didn't come in order to give us a heart of stone. In our sin, we already had a heart of stone. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world because the world was already under condemnation. But God so loved the world that he gave, that's such an important word, he gave, not just he sent, not just he assigned, he gave. And the ultimate act of giving that culminates in the cross and in the empty tomb, he gave his only son. 
that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. That whoever believes in him will be born again. Whoever believes in him will have that heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. Whoever believes in him will be transformed from being dead to being alive. Jesus didn't come in order to tell us how dead we are to bring us under condemnation. Scripture says that we were already dead in our sins and trespasses. He did come to save. Right now in the third chapter of the Gospel of John, Nicodemus, driven by urgency, comes to see Jesus at night. Like what was said in chapter 2 in the closing verses, he had seen the signs and he believed, but we're not sure exactly what he believed. Jesus didn't entrust himself to the people because he understood what was in man. He understood the superficiality of their response. They, they did not yet understand that he was demanding and he was promising being born again. Nicodemus, following that very same pattern, comes to Jesus in the urgency of night. Jesus looks him right in the face and says, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, that's impossible. Jesus says, yes, it is. But that's why I've come, to make the impossible by you possible for you. The entire gospel is distilled in John 3.16. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. You must be born again. I wanted to speak on this text because... It's very easy for us to try to speak of the gospel in terms less honest, less straightforward, potentially to the culture around us less offensive, then you must be born again. But remember, there is no gospel except you must be born again. There is no way into the kingdom of Christ but you must be born again. There is no forgiveness of sins except for you must be born again. There is no life except for you must be born again. Enough we read Nicodemus. Except we don't. Nicodemus disappears in the Gospel of John in John chapter 3, only to appear later. He will argue before the Sanhedrin that no one can be convicted of a crime without getting to make his case before the Sanhedrin. Well, that looks like Nicodemus is at least speaking up for Jesus, being able to make his case. He knew what Jesus said to him, let Jesus say it to the whole Sanhedrin. That doesn't tell us enough about Nicodemus. But after the crucifixion of Christ, we are told that Nicodemus joined Joseph of Arimathea in preparing the body of Jesus for burial. In public, in the light of day, the teacher of Israel, the ruler of the Jews, and the member of the Pharisees, in an ultimate act of devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, went and helped to prepare the body of Christ, the executed criminal, for burial. What in the world could explain what the teacher of Israel, the ruler of the Jews, the member of the Pharisees, was doing preparing the body of Jesus for burial? Only one thing. He was born again.
by God's grace. May we who by God's grace have been born again share the gospel with charity such that others will know they too must be born again. And by the miracle of the grace and mercy of God, they may be born again. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for all that you give us in your word. May every text live ever afresh in our hearts. May we be ever more obedient. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.